0: Welcome to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations Podcast. In this series, we will discuss market and legal insight and explore the latest trends and challenges facing businesses today and how they must evolve to meet them, both in the short and long term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers.
1: Hello, I'm Sammy Fang, a partner at DOA Piper in Hong Kong. And today I will be presenting this episode in which we'll be discussing the development of modern slavery legislation in the UK, in Australia, and Asia, and their impact on corporations carrying on businesses across the globe. Today I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Patrick Rappo, who is a co-chair of our Global Investigations Practice based in London and Natalie Katon, a partner in our Brisbane office, who leads our investigations team in Australia. Welcome both. Well, we have been hearing a fairly lots of noise about SESG initiatives, but of course, don't forget, modern slavery is very much a subset of that anyway. And for many corporations around the world, modern slavery risk remains a concern not just in Europe, in Australia, but also in countries in APAC, even though countries in APAC do not have or have not yet adopted a modern slavery legislation. And with that, I think it's important to think back back in 2015 when the UK legislation was introduced. So perhaps it's timely to get Patrick to give us an overview about some of the sort of key features of that legislation. And the key obligations that he imposes on companies. Patrick?
0: Thanks, Sammy. Yeah, the Modern Slavery Act in the UK was brought into force a number of years ago now, and currently there are, in fact, a number of amendments potentially going to go through in relation to it. But looking back at the original legislation, which came out on the 31st of March 2016, it brought in three criminal offences, which won't concern companies that much in and of themselves, because they're not offences which companies are ever likely to become involved with. However, it is those within their supply chain that this really concerns, and those are the offences of slavery or servitude, forced or compulsory labour, and then the final one, human trafficking, and committing an offence with intent to commit human trafficking. The real meat and bones for a company, however, is the requirement for organisations who have a Total annual turnover in the UK of more than 36 million to prepare a slavery and human trafficking statement in relation to transparency in their supply chains, and these must be uh, uh, these statements must be approved by the company board, signed by a director, and then there are specific Home Office guidance on how to prepare statements. Obviously, the uh, uh, real issue with this legislation is that although the statements contain steps or should contain steps that the company has undertaken to verify that their business and supply chains are slavery free, the statement isn't compulsory. There, there is no criminal penalty for not. Undertaking such a statement. There is reputational damage if you don't, and that's something which we can look at later as to the, the, the teeth that the legislation has. So I won't preempt that question at the minute, but hopefully that gives a little bit of a flavour of what the legislation is currently like. Some of the changes which are coming through uh, effectively are, are dealing with criminal the, the timetabling uh, as to when these need to be signed, and also the mandatory or major making its contents mandated, currently it's voluntary. Uh, however, there are no changes planned in terms of making this, in fact, criminal.
1: Thanks for that, Patrick, for the overview on the UK position. Natalie, obviously the Australian law is relatively newer, but in terms of its overall workings and how it imposes obligations on companies, how different is it compared to the UK legislation?
2: It's actually a very similar approach to the, the UK legislation. Um, companies with a annual turnover of Australian 100 million are the companies that pass the threshold requirement and have to prepare an annual statement. But there are some key differences as well, and a particular key difference is the criteria that you have to report against. So In Australia, there's six key criteria, and the one that I think is causing companies the most concern is the criteria where they need to explain the steps that they've taken to understand the risks, not only within their organisation, but also the modern slavery risks that arise in their supply chains. And the law has been in effect for a couple of years now, and what we're seeing, the feedback from the regulators, is that the companies aren't doing that risk assessment and therefore the statements that they're preparing are not meeting with that mandatory criteria. I think it's also important that that risk assessment, it really does set up the framework for all of the other steps and another criteria that we have to report against in Australia is to explain how a company is taking steps to mitigate and to minimise its anti-corruption risk exposure. So again, if you haven't done a risk assessment, it's very difficult for you to be able to say not only what your risks are, but how, as an organisation, you're going to take steps to mitigate those risks. So I think that those are sort of the key points of difference under the Australian legislation. And what we are finding is that where we're working for global clients who have reporting obligations under many jurisdictions, that it's necessary to ensure that you are speaking with local law advisors to ensure that your statement, if you're preparing a joint statement to cover multiple jurisdictions, complies with all of the nuances in the particular jurisdictions.
1: Right. I think that makes a lot of sense, particularly, like you said, where you're dealing with global companies and often they need to pull in all the sort of updates from their subsidiaries across the globe. So that consistent approach does make sense. Again, as I said earlier, these legislations, in effect, are very new and there have also been some sort of discussions, uh, sometimes in the media, that the legislation themselves may not have sufficient teeth to really force companies to make the reporting, to follow the obligations imposed, etc. Do you agree with that, Natalie?
2: I agree that the legislation, just like Patrick's mentioned from a UK perspective, we don't have penalty provisions here. So a company who is required to report who doesn't file an annual statement is not going to have a a fine or a penalty applied against them. And so in, in that sense, yes, you can understand where the criticism comes from. However, I do think that the legislation is starting to bite in other ways. In Australia recently, we've had the Human Rights Law Centre and a coalition of campaign groups with leading universities and charity organisations involved looking into the manner in which companies are reporting and publicly assessing and um, naming and shaming, if you will, the companies that are not reporting well and at the same time also praising those companies that are doing a good job. This report, and this was a recent report, there's been others like it over the last year, not surprisingly, they've made their way into you know, Australian mainstream media. So the Fin Review has picked up an article recently and has again called out those companies. And that's going to obviously have an effect for those poorly performing companies in terms of how they're viewed by business partners and potential investors. So that's one way I think the legislation does work. And then there's also, as as Patrick touched upon before, there's also the related reputational damage and for listed companies. Um, many of whom who you know, will be required to report under this legislation. There's also the related shareholder concerns and so forth. I'm not sure if you have any other thoughts on that, Patrick.
0: I think it's interesting in a number of ways because the Swiss have brought out some recent legislation which they've been trying to bring out for the last number of years uh, and it's effectively amendments to their criminal code regarding transparency on non-financial matters and due diligence on human rights in relation to minerals and conflict zones and child labour and so on. Uh, And they've actually brought out financial penalties in relation to that. And I think that's probably a response to the criticisms that you've just been talking about. Natalie and I think it steps up the game and I think once they start enforcing that legislation by both monitoring companies and also by enforcing it through the criminal code I think that's going to set the domino dropping for other uh, countries to bring in similar legislation because it, it is a very significant failing for want of a better word in the legislation which is out there currently in other jurisdictions is that it doesn't really bite and I think where it does bite currently is with class action and so on because essentially if you are having suppliers in your supply chain that have had involvement with slavery, breaches of human rights and so on, you really are potentially going to be subject to class actions being brought and obviously this isn't the time to speak about the numerous cases which there are out there in relation to this and certainly in the mining space and other such issues. I think that is something which is going to be the next springboard really from human rights breaches as a result of not reporting properly in relation to modern slavery and I think that also in Europe there's uh, been attempts in the not too distant past in order to bring about some additional legislation as opposed to just directives and guidance in relation to your supply chains in relation to slavery and human rights and I think those are likely to pick up some speed with the activities which are happening across Australia and in Switzerland and in other jurisdictions so I think it's a, it's a very much watch space and companies really, I think, need to start managing these risks in order that they can best protect themselves now and also in the future.
1: Yeah, I think, Patrick, in particular, you, at the end you mentioned some pretty interesting points that the classic action angle is certainly going to be, if that really takes off and with new cases going to the courts, that's certainly going to be putting companies on notice, and given how potentially the sort of liabilities or compensation involved, should a case be successful against a particular organisation, that risk profile is certainly is going to be heightened for companies. So I think in that sense, it's it's good time to ask both of you, in terms of managing the, the risk. I guess, what should companies do, what should organisations, particularly global organisations do?
2: Yeah, sure. So first and foremost, you have to understand your obligations. If you're a global organisation operating in numerous jurisdictions, make sure that you are fully across the legislation that applies to you and keep ensuring that you are keeping updated because the laws are developing. We haven't touched upon it today, but we're seeing developments across Europe, um, proposed legislation in other jurisdictions other than just the UK and Australia, which of course has been the focus of our talk, and uh, it's rapidly evolving. So make sure you understand your legal obligations. And then the second thing I'll talk about, and it's something that I've, I've already touched upon today, is, is there's no point investing time and money in this area if you don't have a full understanding of your risk profile. And so if you do one thing this year, it should be carrying out a a bespoke risk assessment that's relevant to your organisation in the sector in which you operate. And that will form the foundation for you to be able to develop an effective modern slavery programme and to be able to meaningfully report under the legislation that applies to you. I suppose just before I pass over to Patrick as well, I think maybe the rounding out comment that I would have is that if this legislation isn't in jurisdictions that you're operating in already, don't think it's, it's not relevant because what we are seeing is even companies operating in unregulated jurisdictions needing to understand their modern slavery risk profile and being able to explain to their business partners who are operating in regulated jurisdictions what they are doing as part of their, their business relationship and maintaining those business partnerships.
0: And that's a very good point, Natalie, because I think one of the changes which is being looked at under the UK legislation is a requirement, a mandatory requirement for modern slavery statements to explicitly name the entity that is covered in a group statement. So as a result, that may well be focusing on an entity within a jurisdiction that doesn't have such modern slavery statement requirements, but which you at the centre in the UK in this case, uh, should be reporting on and therefore it's effectively naming and shaming that particular entity for whatever uh, breaches it may or may not have. But in terms of sort of practical issues, I think you've covered off all of the key areas in terms of the sort of structure of the supply chain and due diligence and risk assessment and so on, but some more sort of practical measures which I think dovetail in with that that companies should really be looking at is sort of making unannounced visits when making assessments, uh, speaking with vulnerable groups, selecting high-risk sites when checking up on your supply chain, and then doing follow-up assessments, speaking to workers who have left their job, querying why, confirming uh, pay issues in relation to staff, overtime hours, and then doing background checks on bidding contractors and suppliers. These are some sort of practical things that one can look at when undertaking these risk assessments, but everything is, as you've mentioned Natalie, I think really flows from those risk assessments from that due diligence and making sure it just tests as broadly and as in depth as you possibly can because it will protect yourself not only under your current legislation, for class actions and also for any future legislation that's likely to be coming down the pipeline.
2: The other benefit of uh, carrying out a, a risk assessment and ensuring that you have that as just sort of your core of your modern slavery program is of course at the moment you know in this this COVID world that we're living in, Supply chains are under enormous pressure and um, as a consumer or purchaser of goods and services from supply chains, many businesses are struggling to ensure the delivery of product and as a result, bargaining power and so forth is lessening. So this isn't, I appreciate that practically speaking, this isn't an easy time for businesses and it's not one where you wish to rattle the chains on your supply chain. But the benefit of a risk assessment is it will really help you to narrow down and focus where your key areas are and so that you as a business can plan how best to proportionately address the risks that you face in hopefully a manner that means that your supply chain isn't disrupted unnecessarily.
0: And also Natalie, on that uh, point in relation to risk assessments, I think it can probably identify two particular risks that you may be subject to. One is that from funders or equity investors who may have imposed certain conditions upon the use of those funds. Classically, you will see clauses in relation to not being involved in bribery and corruption. You will often see clauses which say don't get involved in any breach of laws and obviously anti-modern slavery laws will be part of that nexus and as such you could be putting yourself at risk from those funders and also from having action being taken against you in relation to that That also can then be pushed down the supply chain, and in relation to countries where there aren't any modern slavery laws, you may be able to impose contractual clauses onto your suppliers so that they don't breach laws, that they don't breach modern slavery laws, and then that imposes obligations upon others. It doesn't automatically give you a get-out-of-jail card, but it is something which can put pressure on others within the supply chain to undertake their own risk assessment in order to make sure that they are doing the right things. And we've certainly seen that in the bribery and corruption space, whereby those requirements contractually and those reps and warranties are pushed down the supply chain and it improves behaviours everywhere. And those two things, I think, are very important contractual clauses which one needs to look at.
1: Yeah, I think um, these are all excellent suggestions. And just to sort of wrap up in the points you made, and the one I touched on earlier, even though countries in, for example, in Asia do not have a modern slavery legislation, the fact is they are dealing with customers that are global and that are subject in the home jurisdiction to that legislation or such legislation. So they themselves have really obligation to comply with the usual supply compliance requirements anyway. And not on top of that, of course, the question of transparency and correctness of the details provided provide to their customers. So they'd be failing that as well, thinking that, well, we don't have a modern slavery legislation at a home jurisdiction, then they themselves may be subject to penalties, up you know, contractual and otherwise, in the future. So certainly that's something for companies in Asia to look out for. And I know for sure that places like China who can often, I should say, roll out new laws fairly quickly, it's possible that new legislation in this area will become full in the next couple of years. Certainly in a compliance sense, they've been doing that fairly quickly in rushing out a number of new legislations and regulations in the past few years in the areas of compliance, in the areas of whistleblower reward systems, for example. It's been a great discussion. So thank you both for taking your time out to, to present this podcast. I hope for people who are listening today on this podcast It's been useful and you find the information potentially be helpful to you. Any questions, certainly you can reach out to us. Please make sure you subscribe to us because by subscribing, you will be receiving the next podcast straight to your device. And do follow us in this series.
0: Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations Podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Thank you and we look forward to you joining us in the future.